0: Welcome to Democracy in Question, the podcast that reflects on the crises of democracy in these troubled times. I'm Shalini Randeria, the Director of the Albert Hirschman Center on Democracy at the Graduate Institute in Geneva and Rector of the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. I'm joined by two guests today, Ivan Krastev and Timothy Snyder. You might remember Tim from our very first episode where we looked at Trumpism and its impact on American democracy. Tim specializes in the history of Central and Eastern Europe and on the Holocaust. He's Richard C. Levin Professor of History at Yale University. Ivan Krastev is a political scientist who is chairman of the Center for Liberal Strategies in Sofia and has written extensively on the EU and on various aspects of democracy For over a decade now. Tim and Ivan, thanks very much for joining me today. Joe Biden was declared the next president of the United States over a month ago, but Donald Trump has refused to accept electoral defeat. Instead, he's trying to hold on to power by outlandish claims of a stolen election due to rigging and so-called illegal votes. He and his supporters have filed some bizarre 50 cases in an absurd attempt to subvert the election results. However, an interesting display of near unanimity by 86 judges across the United States have dismissed each of these cases outright for lack of any evidence of irregularity or of voter fraud. We are recording this episode today on the 14th of December, the day the Electoral College electors are formally meeting to cast their votes. In this episode, what I would like to discuss with both of you is the question of what democratic legitimacy means after Trump and whether Trumpism will cast its long shadow over liberal democracies the world over. Tim, let me start with you closer to home for me in Pakistan The whole issue of a stolen election has been recurring election after election. So in a strange way, the post-electoral developments in the US remind me of this trope of rigging of ballots, voter fraud, corruption at the polls, etc. And closer to home, in a sense now, while I'm sitting in Vienna, in Belarus, we have the spectacle of a president who is refusing to concede defeat. The other analogy that comes to mind for me is that of Latin American populists like Perron. What is happening in the United
1: States? One very banal development has to do with money. Our elections cost a lot of money. A. Trump claims to have a lot of money, but doesn't. B. He's about to leave office and face a world of debt, at least half a billion dollars of debt. C. He has raised more money by claiming to have won the election than he raised while campaigning to be president. His biggest fundraising month was actually after the election was over. And he raised it for a political action committee, which he can then use to pay himself giving speeches on his own golf courses. So basically what he has done is he's conned Americans into helping him pay back the debts that he's going to face after he leaves office. So so that's one thing. A second thing about the U.S., you mentioned the courts and how well the courts have done, and that's true. I think Trump and his team are, they've won one case, which was trivial, having to do with setting aside a few ballots in Pennsylvania, and they've lost 57. But what that says to me is that the legislature has totally failed. So our system is supposed to be checks and balances, you know, this classical Lockean idea that you're going to have three, you're going to have the executive, you're going to have the legislature, you're going to have the judiciary. The legislature has fallen down. That's how I see it. They were unable to impeach him. They were unable to stop abuses of power while he was president. And now, as he puts forward these, I mean, it's not just that they're absurd. It's that everyone knows that they're not true, right? As he puts forward these false claims, much of the legislature is behind him. The majority of the Republicans in our lower house of parliament, the House of Representatives, actually joined in the lawsuit to the Supreme Court. So what I see there is that we're being saved basically by habit And by one branch of government, after two branches of government have basically fallen over the cliff. And the third thing that I want to say, just hanging off to Ivan, because this has been his point for a long time. In the 21st century, what Trump is doing is really normal. I mean, Pakistan, Latin America, Africa, all over the world, Russia, it's pretty normal to treat elections as the way you legitimate yourself, but not to count votes. So in a way, what Trump has done in the last few weeks is pushing us towards a kind of authoritarian normality. He hasn't succeeded, but I would agree with your premise that what he's doing is pushing us towards a kind of world norm. Ivan, Listen, stolen elections, fraudulent elections, from where I'm coming from, and
2: it's not Pakistan, but it is Bulgaria. (laughs) This is something that basically we have been discussing a lot. But there was one important way we have been discussing it, and that this was a deviation. And the norm was the United States and the United Kingdom. If you have a fraudulent election, be it in Albania or in Bulgaria, the argument was this cannot happen in the United States. And then suddenly, basically, Trump normalized the United States. So now the United States is a normal country. Secondly, what for me is very important is it's not simply that the Congress, the vast majority of the Republican congressmen, did not concede defeat. Only 29 of the Republican congressmen basically have uh, congratulated Biden before the decision of the electorals. But 80 percent, according to the polls of the voters of Trump, agree with him that he has won. And here is a basic question in the political science, it is that so old that we probably have forgotten the right answer. Why, in a polarized political space, a loser of elections concedes defeat? Adam Przeworski has the famous minimalist definition of democracy, which runs like this. Democracy is a political regime in which the incumbent can lose elections and after that, leaving power. Democratic theory is going to tell you that one of the reasons you're living is because, unlike in the authoritarian system, you know that losing elections does not mean losing everything. You're not going to lose your property, you're not going to lose your life. Secondly, one of the reasons you're doing this is because you're afraid that if you're not going to concede, external enemies are going to benefit. You're going to create a level of political instability in your country which is it's unpatriotic not to concede. But certainly, and for me, the most important is, you are agreeing to concede losing elections because you believe that you can win the next time. In democracy, the most important elections are the next elections. Why then Trump didn't do it? Why he didn't say, I'm going to destroy Biden in 2024? One of the most important things to understand was his statement from 2016 telling the Republicans, if you're not going... To help me to win today you're never going to win anytime anymore because the democrats are going to open the borders all these immigrants are going to come they're going to have a voting rights and you're doomed this is the last elections this is the last and final battle so you cannot allow to lose it and this is of course paradoxical and we know that this is not true that the republican party is not demographically doomed but this kind of a fixation And playing on the fears of a majority that starts to feel themselves as a future minorities explains not simply why Trump is doing this, but also why his voters stay with him. And my last point is this is also the biggest problem in a totally polarized society. If you believe that the victory of the other party is the worst danger to democracy existing, then conceding and following the rules should not be taken for granted And in the United States now, both major political parties believe that the electoral system is rigged. The Democrats, because basically the president who is getting the minority of the votes is winning, and this has happened to several Republican presidents till 2000, The Republicans, because they do believe that wrong people are getting the right to vote. So this type of a nature of the constitutional crisis, in my view, will go beyond Trump. And this is going to be something that is not going to be easy to solve because in order to have a solution to the constitutional crisis, you need a consensus. And the consensus is something that is not very much to be seen in the United States today.
0: One could now see this election as part of, a, of semi-legitimate U.S. presidents, right? So he would be sort of in a genealogy with George W. Bush, who won due to the stopping of vote counting in Florida, Obama, who remained for the Republican base, an illegitimate president because of the completely fake news of his not having born in the U.S. There seems to be a deeper pattern of semi-legitimate presidents of which, without Total merit. But the claim that Biden has actually stolen the election would be only one more in this kind of a narrative.
1: We have to make some distinctions about what's meant here by legitimacy. So in 2000, Bush versus Gore, just to remember, the issue was that Gore almost certainly won Florida, but the Supreme Court stopped the count and Bush became president. That was an authentically extremely close election. And it's a slightly different situation from today because there was relatively little fiction about it. I remember CNN was just starting to put their ticker on the bottom of the screen, and on their ticker, they had, like, people's opinions. And I remember being troubled at, oh, why are they putting people's opinions on the bottom of the screen, right? This is a factual question. Let's count the votes. Let's figure it out. 20 years later, we're in a very different situation. I mean, I think it's worth emphasizing, since we've used the word fraud so much already, that this last election in the United States was not, in fact, fraudulent. I mean, as far as one can tell, it was much better run than in 2016 and probably better run than any election in the 21st century, precisely because people were afraid of the Russians and precisely because people had spent a year listening to Trump talk about all the possible problems and then trying to solve those possible problems, right? So the change would be that in the intervening two decades since Bush and Gore, we probably have better elections, but we have much more fiction. So Trump's story I thought fraud is just a story. And he's a narrator. I mean, he, he's an entertainer. He started telling the story basically a year in advance. And he picked up intensity on the story in June, July, and August. He said what was going to happen. And then he just repeated it after the vote were actually cast, which is a classic storytelling method. You say what you're going to say, and then you say it, regardless of what's happening. Biden won by 7 million. It wasn't really that close. And even in Electoral College, it wasn't that close, really. If Biden had won by 20 million, we'd still have a problem. Because the reason why people think Trump won is just that Trump keeps saying it over and over again. It's like Lewis Carroll, you know, what I I say three times is true. There's the factual matter of whether your elections work. But then there's the question of faith. You can choose to believe that they don't work. And that reverses the old situation, which was maybe the elections were not a little bit frayed around the edges, but everyone kind of believed that they worked.
2: I find this point of make-believe critically important because one of the important things that happened with Trump is to convince his voters that the real enemy is not the external enemy, but the Democratic Party. The Republicans don't like Chinese, they don't like Russians, but the real enemy is Biden. And from this point of view, you do not have simply two party in a quite polarized political communities. In the United States, you really have two Americas to different political communities which do not share neither common reality, not a common idea of what America is about. And it's not an American phenomenon. For example, the level of political polarization you can see even in Europe. Look at Poland. In a certain way, you have basically the two political parties really populating the different worlds.
0: Tim, you raised this point earlier 17 attorney generals and 126 Republican politicians, elected politicians, joining Trump in a suit filed with the Supreme Court to overturn the results by not counting what they consider to be illegal ballots. One begins to wonder if there is utter contempt for some of the basic rules of democracy because it cannot just be that they think they're committing political suicide by disagreeing with Trump even when he's out of office.
1: No, you're absolutely right. I think that analysis that they're cowardly is one more example of, you know, the Democrats and the mainstream press telling themselves a story about how things are basically okay and we basically have a two-party system. I agree. I think there's something deeper going on. And, and one can start with Ivan's point about demography. So you know, you're in favor of democracy because your democracy has always ended up with you on top. Of course, you're going to win Georgia. Of course, you're going to win Alabama because you have, in fact, rigged the system. Of course, Georgia is really a blue state. I mean, Alabama is probably also a blue state. These places where the Republicans are used to winning if black people actually vote, you know, then probably they're actually democratic states. So the system has been rigged in the US for a century, but part of the, the nice faith that we've talked about about the system working is also, you know, the a kind of white supremacist notion that it works for us and so basically it's okay, right? The Republicans actually did extremely well in 2020, lest we forget. They did much better in 2020 in terms of the numbers of votes that they got. In the House of Representatives, they almost took the House back, right? They were supposed to lose the Senate. They didn't lose the Senate unless something strange happens in Georgia. Ivana's is right. It's not that demography objectively is against them. But you do have this feeling that the system is supposed to work for you, and it's not really working for you. And then to get down then into the gritty American details, the Republican Party hasn't really wanted people to vote for 50 years since the Civil Rights Act. You've always been making the point it's a voter suppression party. It's fallen into the trap of its own logic. You get better and better at suppressing the vote, as they have. But that's a trap because if you become the voter suppression party, then you no longer have the normal democratic incentives to come up with policies that would reach out to the whole country and get you elected. So they've now painted themselves into a corner where if you just go down public opinion polling on their policies, they can't win. They don't have popular policies. They don't even have any resonant policies except abortion. So in a way, it's logical that they would take this next step. And then, look, it always happens that if you think you're going to suppress the vote of one group— eventually you're going to slide over and suppress the vote of another group. I mean, one way to read this whole thing is, wait a minute, like now, you know, white people's votes are being suppressed. It's interesting, right? Because what the Republicans are doing is they're saying the black people cheated. That's the whole story. The fantasy is those black people in Detroit were counting the votes over and over. That's what the lawsuit says. But if you disenfranchise all of Michigan and all of Pennsylvania, you're also disenfranchising millions of white people. And that's the new move. And then, you know, then the Supreme Court's not going to take it.
2: Even This is goes to something that at least, in my view, is critical to understanding what is going to happen with democracy even outside of the United States. In 1953, after the anti-communist riots in East Berlin, Brecht came with this famous poem, Solution, in which he said... If, uh, basically, the government so much is disappointed with the people, better elect a new one. But what people don't understand is, in a democracy, there are always two processes going at the same time. People elect the government, and the government tries to elect the people. And they are trying to elect the people historically, deciding who has the right to vote, either formally or informally. You can have universal franchise, but like in the southern states, making it impossible for people to vote. That's why immigration became such a big issue. Exactly. Because democracy is the political regime that is very sensitive to numbers. In a democracy, it's very important to be a majority. When you're a majority, be it ethnical, racial majority, it could be ideological majority, and you have the feeling that you're losing power because of the demographic change. You have several strategies. One is to try to empower yourself by putting in the constitutions all things that matter for you. Others is to try to define the very nature of who is majority. In the Republican Party, you're going to see many people who said, listen, we can offer to the Latinos something that Democrats cannot. We can offer them being white. So in a certain way, the very meaning of white is going to change. In the way it has been changing in the United States all the time, neither the Italians, nor the Irish were white at the end of the 19th century. It was very much about creating political coalitions around race and whiteness. And this is going to be the same about ethnicity. And the third story is, which, by the way, we see in Europe, which we see in places like Hungary and others, you understand that society is going to change, that they're going to be foreigners coming, working in your market, and so on. But then you say, we can open open the market, but we're not going to open the body politics. So this is like in Dubai, you're going to be a lot of foreigners, but they're not going to vote. And I do believe these tensions between society and the body politics is at the center of what is happening. This type of a majorities who are declining in numbers and try to see how they should try to preserve their power in this new situation in a in which democracy is the only game that is perceived legitimate. I do believe this is the real kind of a crisis that we are talking about.
0: I have been looking at the court decisions across the U.S. from the lowest courts to the Supreme Court with a great deal of interest. These are judges, men and women, young and old, inexperienced and experienced ones, people who have been and judges who have been in power very recently put into place by Trump and the Republicans, Republicans and Democrats, Everybody is agreed that the independence of the judiciary is important. One of the puzzles for me was, is one of the reasons why a lot of the Republican judges are going this way is because that actually it's a conservative reaction by judges who are against executive overreach. So that the reasons for this unanimity may be various, but all of them have really stood up as the bulwark against authoritarianism.
1: I mean, you're a student of this, and I'm I'm sure you see deeper than I. I would point out one thing, which is that the state Supreme Court votes have been often four to three. So it's not that all judges all the time have been resisting this. The second thing I would point out is that among the Republicans, what we're seeing is a division between the people who think we can keep working the system and the people who think it's time to throw the system away. Trump, the Senate, the House of Representatives— You have a lot of people, ironically, who are saying, we can throw it away. When you get down lower to the states, to the people who actually draw up the electoral districts, to the people who actually count the votes, those people are more on the side of, we can keep working the system the way that it is. Neither of those positions is particularly democratic. One position says, we can manage democracy. The other position says, we can't manage it anymore. That's now the fight within the Republican Party. The judges are gonna be closer to the we can manage the system side of the argument. You know, the Supreme Court threw out this case from Texas a few days ago, this outrageous case, is also the same Supreme Court that all the way across 2020, every single time, ruled against measures that would make it easier for people to vote. So I would characterize it rather that way. But there's, I mean, not to be entirely cynical, there's another factor here, which is that we are a very lawyerly society. And there is a certain level of honor, you know, and a desire not to be shamed. And the Trump lawsuits were so poor and so transparently poor that I think the fact that some lawyers could shame other lawyers and some judges could shame other lawyers also played a certain role here. Just one very brief point, because unlike two
2: of you, I can never have a deep understanding of courts. But what struck me is that there are two institutions in the United States that turned to be most resilient in the Trump period. It was the courts and the army. In a certain way, where the professional identity is much more important than the political identity, because also your career very much depends on the view of your peers, not on the view basically of the general public. And the fact that in a certain way these two type of groups were not particularly democratic in the terms of being integrated in a bigger democratic society allowed them to be much more resilient. The army was critical. What happened in June and basically people like Jim Mattis and others a message to Trump, don't put the army on the streets, was critical for avoid violence in the post-election period. And secondly, of course, the courts, nevertheless, for what kind of reasons, they made America to have a legitimate president, at least in legal terms. So interestingly enough, we always believe that part of the problem of democracy is that not everything is democratized enough. It can turn out that having sectors of societies that are not democratized enough is a precondition for democracy to work.
0: This is an interesting paradox that Ivan points to. But let me come to my last question Now that we've uh, discussed all the pitfalls, actually, and all the backsliding of democracy, the question is, what remains after this election on the one hand of Trumpism, the long shadow of Trumpism, the world over, for soft authoritarian regimes elsewhere, or what are the positive lessons we can draw from the resilience of some of, paradoxically, as Ivan points out, the non-democratic institutions, for the robustness of democracy also outside of the United States.
1: I think the U.S. here provides a very interesting warning for the Europeans because there's also a social welfare state aspect to it. These people have fallen faster and harder than they should have fallen because we don't have trade unions and we don't have a social welfare state. The decline of the U.S. in relative terms, the decline of industry, the decline of the white middle classes, maybe that was all inevitable, but we took a choice in the 1980s to make it as fast as possible. That was Ronald Reagan. And now we're paying for that. So if you want to avoid this, you should make sure you have some kind of a welfare state. Because what people are now used to in the U.S. is a lot of physical pain, a lot of unnecessary death. A lot of Americans just think this is normal. And to pick up one of Yvonne's points earlier, I mean, then you can just use that energy in different ways. I mean, the welfare state isn't going to stop populism, but I think it does slow things down. The second thing is old-fashioned political mobilization turns out to work. You know, Trump got a lot of votes, but Biden got 80 million votes. More Americans voted in this election cycle than, than ever in recent history. And that's a result of old-fashioned mobilization. It's a result of people going out in the streets in the summertime. An unfortunate side effect of a conversation like ours is that we can get all cynical about voting and votes. But the main reason why Biden's going to be in the Oval Office is that so many people work so hard for it. And then in terms of optimism, I just want to make my tactical point about the Republican Party, because if you try to do this kind of thing and fail, I think you do face consequences. I mean, if I were a paid advisor of Republicans, which I'm just happy to say that I'm not, of them or anyone else, I would have said the first person who says Trump is lying is going to be way out ahead in 2024. What they've done instead is they've said, okay, Trump gets to have his stab in the back myth. We're going to let him say he's the victim of all this. But the problem with that is, Once you go into that reality television show, you're just bit players. And it's his reality television show. The story is all about him, and it's going to be about him, so long as we're talking about the quote unquote fraudulent election. And the Republicans who go along with that have basically committed themselves to a story which A isn't true, but B keeps Trump at the center of the party. And what are they going to do in 2024? I think Trump is going to be very weak in 2024, assuming that he's alive, not sick, not in Russia, and not in prison. I don't think he's going to be a strong candidate in 2024. He lost in 2020. He barely won in 2016. If I were the Republicans, I'd want to be running somebody else. So I think they've got themselves into the situation where basically having attempted a kind of coup, the party is going to fracture into a Trump and non-Trump part. And that can, in a way can be a positive lesson, right? It can. The lesson can be, hold on, you know maybe you shouldn't try to break institutions from the inside. Because if you can't actually do it, (laughs) that's the cynical part. If you can't actually do it, you're then going to pay a price.
2: I very much agree, because this is very important. We took Trump and the development of Trump as the only thing that the Republicans could have done. And this is not true. In 2000, it was Karl Rove person behind George W. Bush who said the next majority in America is going to be Republican majority because the Latinos are our voters. They're Catholic, they're pro-abortion, they share our values. This is what democracy is based on. You should try to convince yourself that the next majority is your majority. Democracy is very bad for fatalistic outlook. If you believe that you are doomed, democracy does not work for you. Nevertheless, because of class, of race, of ethnicity. So strangely enough, the success of democracy very much depends on the fact how the two parties see the future. Both parties should believe that future belongs to them. And I do believe this is the thing that in a certain way we are learning from the Trump experience. Being gloomy can help you win one election. It cannot help you win two elections.
0: This has been a fascinating discussion for me which has sort of gone from the nitty-gritties of the American electoral system to how optimism is actually necessary because the temporality of democracy is such that one needs to have a faith that the next election is able to change things and parties which are trying to destroy precisely that faith by putting into place either constitutional measures, as we have seen in many parts of Europe, Or other measures, legislative voter suppression measures, such that their victories are permanently locked in, are the ones which are going to be the long-term losers of this process. This concludes this episode of Democracy in Question. Thank you for listening. We are taking the next few weeks off, so happy holidays to everyone. And we'll be back on January 14th with a fascinating conversation with Lord Skidelsky on precisely one of the questions we discussed at the end today about the impact of austerity politics paired with culture wars on liberal democracy. So don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and let others know about the series. In the meantime, stay in touch with the work of the Albert Hirschman Center on Democracy on our website at www.graduateinstitute.ch democracy and of the IWM at www.iwm.at.